Okay, please rise for the reading of God's Word. We are in Luke chapter 9. We're going through the Luke, the book of Luke, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. This is Jesus speaking. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus speaking. I am just going to read one verse, verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you show us the fullness of who you are, why you came to earth, what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. All right, so it has been said, I've heard it in Calvary Chapel circles, is the best way to get to know the Bible is to read it like a cow eats grass. Do you know how a cow eats grass? They chew the grass, and then what do they do? That's right. They swallow it, and then they spit it out. Ugh. You say, man, did I walk into a church? What is this? But it's true. The best way to get to know the Bible is to to read the Word of God or go over it like a, a cow chews grass. They chew it up, they swallow it, they spit it out, and they chew it back up again. That's called chewing the cud. A cow chews the cud. Did you know a a cow spends six hours a day eating and eight hours a day chewing? So you thought you'd come to church and you wouldn't, wouldn't learn something this morning. Now you know. The average cow, six hours a day eating, eight hours a day chewing. The average cow has more than 40,000 jaw movements a day. And the Bible does talk about meditating on the Word of God day and night. This is what we're supposed to do. Day and night. Best way to get to know the Bible is to read it like a cow chews grass. And I want to do some of that this morning. I want to continue chewing on the very same verses in the book of Luke that we were in last week. Last week, some of you may have left here and just spit them out. You know, after you left, well, sorry, you gotta, you got to chew them back up or get them back in your mouth. And we're going to um, talk about them uh, some more again. It's what we do with the Word of God around here. It says in verse 18 that Jesus was alone praying. So at this time, as we said last week, the crowds are following him. Thousands of people are, are following, men, women, and children. 
and he's alone praying, and, and as we said, when Jesus prays, pay close attention to what happens immediately after. There's a connection there. Jesus hears from the Father during his prayer, and then he does what he has been told to do. Here Jesus prays in Luke chapter 9, and, and apparently he's told by his Father, okay, they're ready. They are ready to find out the fullness of who you are, why you came, and what it means to follow you. They're ready. They are ready now to hear the fullness of who you are, what it really, who you really are, why you came, and what it means to follow you. At this point in time, you know, the disciples had been following him for a couple years. Uh, they knew, obviously, they knew things about Jesus. They knew where he was from. They knew his, who his parents were. Uh, by this, this time, I'm sure they uh, knew, knew what Jesus liked to eat. He, he was a man, fully man. There had been cults over the centuries saying he wasn't really a man. He was a man. He had a favorite thing to eat. He, but he had places he liked to go. We find out later in the book of Luke, he liked going to the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. He had places like he, he liked to uh, hang out. Of course, the disciples also knew he had supernatural powers, Far beyond anyone they ever knew or ever even heard of, he had opened the eyes of the blind. He had opened up the ears of the deaf people. He had uh, uh, he had uh, cleansed lepers. He's raised the dead, and they even knew at this time that he was the Messiah. Although they didn't really know fully what that meant, they knew a bunch of things about Jesus, but really, at this time, their understanding of who he was was shallow. It was superficial. It was skin deep. So here in Luke 9, Jesus hears from the Father, okay, now you got to take them to the deep side of the pool. They've been wading around in the uh, shallow side, splashing around with each other. Take them to the deep side. The Lord... Uh, is, is, is going to, he's basically, what's going on here, he's been instructed to get his disciples to a point of decision. Okay, now, now you're going to tell them really who you are, why you came, and what it means to follow you, and they're going to decide. And I believe it was at this time, Luke chapter 9, that 11 of the disciples decide to follow him. One of them, Judas, decides, no man, this ain't for me. I'm out of here. And he checks out now in his heart, not physically. Before people check out of their walk with God physically, they've done so months, if not years before, in their heart. And I believe it's right here when the decision is made. He brings them to a point of decision, to a point of decision. God loves us too much, and he's too holy to allow us to stay where we are in our skin-deep understanding of him. Some of you this morning, your relationship with God or your understanding with God is skin-deep. It's skin-deep. Some, uh, some of us have had relationships in our past that were skin-deep. They're pretty unstable, huh? And that's what your relationship with Jesus is about. But the Lord brought you here this morning because he wants you to find out just the fullness of who he is, uh, um, why he came, what it means to follow him, because 
He loves you. He doesn't want a skin-deep relationship, but that's what he has with you, and he wants something so much more. And so he begins with his disciples, and he says at the end of verse 18, so who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? How about you all? What do you think? Who do the crowds say that Jesus is? The people out on the street, the world. Who do, who do you hear? What do you hear about Jesus? Who do the crowds say that he is? Now, our problem is that we become affected or really infected with what the crowd around us says about Jesus. Uh, what the crowd says about Jesus um, is always, by the way, messed up. It's twisted up. It's just plain wrong. And Jesus is challenging them. He's challenging you this morning. Are you just one of the crowd? Are you just one of the crowd? Who do the crowds say that I am? And Peter says in verse, uh, rather they say in verse 19, they, say, they answered and said, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say that one of the old prophets has risen again uh, there, and uh, some things don't change. It's no different today two th- than 2,000 years ago. The crowd is going to be all over the place with their opinions of who Jesus is. Some people will say, well, he's a famous prophet. Others will say uh, he's a great teacher. Uh, others will say he's a great leader. Uh, And some people will even say things like, well, he's the best person that ever lived. But always, when it comes to what the crowd says about Jesus, always, there's a problem with it, and that is that their answer leaves them with an out, with an excuse of why really they don't have to follow him. Why? Why? Because their answer reveals that they think or they say he's just a man. And no one ever said we have to follow a man. The answer that the crowd always gives as to who Jesus is, typically in 2012, is usually that he's just a man. Now again, some will say, he wasn't a man. He, he was just a spirit. And that's sort of another way of dodging the same question. And he's a spirit, and all spirits are connected. You know, this kind of thing. But the crowd's always twisted up and messed up. Our problem is that we get affected, infected by the crowd. That's why Jesus begins, and he says, who, is, who does the crowd say that I am? So they answer. But then what does he say in verse 20? But who do you say that I am? You told me what the crowd says, but who do you say? Who who do you say that I am? It's a wonderful thing about God. He always, eventually, he makes sure that we get up front, close, and personal with him. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, the Christ of God, in verse 20. Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Now, in the parallel count, the same account in the book of Matthew, it says this. Peter says this. Peter responds. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son 
of the living God. So Peter says, uh, Jesus says, so who do you say that I am? You told me what the crowd say. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. So no more excuses, no more outs. Jesus is God. He's the son of the living God. And in Matthew's account, when uh, Peter when, rather, when um, Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds back to Peter. And he says this, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That was Peter's uh, birth name. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, he didn't figure that out. God told him that. The Spirit of God told him that he was the uh, Christ, the Son of the living God. And how true that is, how we need God in heaven, how we need the Holy Spirit to reveal to us who Jesus is, because there are so many voices in the crowd trying to tell us who he is. We need our Father in heaven. It's no different today than with Peter to reveal to us who he really is. What a glorious day when God reveals to you, to you, who Jesus is. When faith, when faith, which the Bible says is a gift from God, you can't manufacture up your faith. When faith invades your heart, possesses your heart, takes control of your heart, captures your heart, and you're able to say the same thing. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He's my Savior. He's the Son of the living God. What a glorious day when you realize that Jesus Christ, you can actually get to know him closely, that God is a mystery no longer. He has revealed himself to you through his son. What a glorious day when you realize that Jesus isn't just some pretty image on a stained glass window way, way up inside of a church on the walls. He's not some far off thing. You can, uh, you can uh, something that's so far off, all you can really do is think about him. You can't really know him. What a glorious day when you understand that's not the case, that he's the son of the living God. He lives in you and with you. You can talk with him, hear from him, do things with him. He's there with you. You can actually bring him right into your life. Hebrews 13 verse five says this. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He himself said, Jesus himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. What a glorious day. Just as Peter said, you're, you're the Christ of God. He owned that in a new way, embraced it. What a glorious day when, when you, me, are able to declare, you're the Christ of, the, uh, of God, my Lord, my Savior, the Son of the living God. Verse 21, we're told something a little odd here. We talked about this last week. It says, and he, Jesus, strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now, if you weren't here, may, you may want to get the CD from last week, but just in a word, the crowds had gotten so out of control at this time, the book of John says they tried to take him by force and put him on a throne and make him king of Israel. 
And, and he's saying, what he's telling them here is don't tell them I'm the Messiah because something needs to happen first before I am uh, installed as king on this earth. And that is what? That's the answer in verse 22, which we began with. He says, don't install me, don't tell them Messiah, I can't be installed as king just yet. Why, verse 22? Because the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Killed? The Christ of God, the Son of the living God, killed? You must be kidding me. You must be kidding me. That makes no sense. In the book of Matthew, it says the apostle Peter took him aside. We talked about this last week and said, no, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. Later on, uh, when uh, Jesus would tell them the same uh, thing, he said, the son of man is is about to be betrayed in the hands of men and they will kill him and the third day he'll be raised up. Same thing. They became exceedingly sorrowful. It made no sense. Why of all people? Would the one person who least deserves to die, the son of the living God, the, the one who from conception never sinned, not once did he disobey the law of God, why would he be killed? There can hardly be a more important question for us to chew on I want to answer that question this morning by uh, just giving you an illustration from everyday life. Credit cards. We know them pretty well. God bless you if you don't have a credit card. Please don't go out and get one if you don't have to. But many of us have credit cards. And what, what happens with a credit card? Well, every time you use a credit card, you incur a debt, an actual legal obligation to pay the credit card company can actually take you into court and, and, and force you by law to pay. The more you use your credit card, the more you will be obligated to pay. If you use your credit card a little, at the end of the month, you will get a credit card statement uh, with a short list of itemized uh, charges. If you use your credit card a lot, at the end of the month, you will get a credit card statement with a long list of itemized charges. Now, the Bible says, every time you sin, any time that you do anything against the Word of God, any time you violate God's law, you incur a debt, a legal obligation to pay. Only the other side is not a credit card company. The other side is God. That's what the Bible says. God Almighty. Every sin, every violation of the law, however small or great, becomes a debt that you owe God. Listen, God cares that much about purity, about innocence, about righteousness, goodness, justice. God is that perfect. 
He is that holy. The Bible says he is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. For our God is a consuming fire. That's what the Bible says. You know, this morning the kids sang, Jesus is my superhero. I I hope he is. He's mine. The Bible actually says that, uses different words. El Shaddai, God Almighty, he's my superhero, but he is also a consuming fire, the Bible says. And God can no more ignore your sin or forget about your sin than a credit card company can ignore the charges on your credit card. In fact, really, it's a very crude analogy because God cares about your holiness infinitely more, infinitely more than a credit card company cares about your credit card charges. And wow, they care a lot about your credit card charges. When's the last time you saw them, like, forget one? You know, when did you see that? You know, I, I, I mean, they don't miss a 99-cent charge on iTunes, man. I mean, yeah, I don't see the credit card company looking at my credit card statement and saying, oh, look, this month he, he charged a, a vacation to the Caribbean, he, uh, 20 visits to restaurants in, uh, around Boston, a motorcycle, a dune buggy, a boat, uh, a horse, a car. 34 99 cent charges to iTunes, but ah, we'll just let it all go this month. We're such nice guys. We're just going to let it all go. When's the last time a, a credit card company did anything like that? Now, believe it or not, maybe we laugh here. That's not too much unlike the crowds in their view of who God is. God is looking at us saying, well, you know, this month he lied to his boss five times. He lied to his coworker. He lied to his neighbor. He went into porn, got drunk, smoked weed, yelled at his wife ten times. But hey, I'm just going to let it go this month. I'm such a nice guy. God's like the Pillsbury Doughboy. Is that guy still appearing in commercials? No. You know, Pillsbury Doughboy, you know, you poke at him. He's like, (laughs) cut it out. (laughs) You know, that's that's what we think about how God deals with our sin. You know, cut it out. That's what the world thinks. That's who Jesus said, who do the crowd say that I am? It's not a lot different than that. But that's not the God of the Bible. God's attitude towards sin is described in Hebrews 4.13. Let's look at this verse. Everything, and I underscore the word everything. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Everything. In other words, every single thing that we've done wrong, we have to give an account for to God. Now, if you want to, if if that doesn't get you, uh, if that doesn't wake you up this morning, how about this one? In Matthew twelve thirty six, this is Jesus speaking. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they have spoken. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, man, but when I read that verse, I'm thinking. 
That's a lot of credit card debt. I mean, you ever get a credit card statement that's three or four pages longer than you thought it would be? It's like, whoa, what is this about? How about a credit card statement that's like three or four hundred thousand pages longer than you thought it'd be? God is holy, brothers and sisters. He's white hot holy. He's a consuming fire. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He cannot ignore sin, any sin. If he ignored sin, any sin, he wouldn't be God. The problem is, and this really is a problem, with credit card debt, you can take out your checkbook and write a check to the credit card company, and as long as there's money in the bank, your slate, it'll be wiped clean. Not so with sin. We can't just take out a check and pay for it, although that is what a lot of people try to do. Some of you here this morning, that's what you try to do to pay for your sin. You take out a checkbook. You write a check or, or, to something or someone or give money. Well, maybe this will make up for the bad things I've done. Or you try to be good or do good things or not do bad things. Well, maybe that will make up for the things that I did. I was reading about Muhammad Ali, the boxer, and how he has devoted a lot of his time to charity. And he said, Muhammad Ali said, with everything I do, I ask myself, will God accept this thing? Because one day, you're going to wake up and it'll be judgment day, so you need to do good deeds. I love going to hospitals. I love sick people. And he's just talking about the things that he does to make up for what he did or things he does to earn a place in heaven. That's a very common misunderstanding about God in the Bible and heaven. Uh, but... Uh, Wherever pick, people picked up that misunderstanding, they didn't get it from the Bible. The Bible teaches no such thing. The Bible teaches something altogether different. The Bible teaches that the only way to pay for sin, even one, is death. The Bible says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23. The penalty for sin is death. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel puts it like this. The soul who sins shall die. That's what you call clarity. The soul who sins shall die. If you actually, the verse is longer than that. The beginning of the verse says, says this. This is God speaking, by the way. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul who sins shall die. So the payment for sin is not a check to the credit card company or a check to God. The payment for sin, for sin is death. God is that holy. He is that serious about right and wrong, righteousness and purity. He's that serious about justice. Again, Jesus says, who do the crowd say I am? They answer and say, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say one of the old prophets had risen again. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And he said, you're right about that. You're right about that. Don't tell the people just yet because first, verse 22, I, the son of man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. 
Why did the Christ, the Son of the living God, have to be killed? Because if he isn't killed, if he doesn't die, we, you, me, us, are left with a debt, a mountain of debt, that we have no way of paying except with our own death. But the Bible says that God so loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only son and gave him over to death to be killed for us that whoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. That is why Jesus had to be killed. That's why he had to die. Again, this verse, John 3.16, God loved the world so much that he gave his only, his one and only son, and anyone who believes in his son will not die, but will have eternal life. He had to die for us so we could have eternal life. But notice verse 22 doesn't end with Jesus. It doesn't end with Jesus being killed. It also says this. It begins again, the son of man must suffer many things. He, he must be killed. But then it says what? And be raised the third day. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? Because he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And the Bible says he has power over death. Uh, but, but why else? There's another reason to give you life, to give you eternal life. Can you imagine if Jesus paid for our sins by dying for us and then he just stays in the grave dead? Can you imagine that? So let's go to Jerusalem and uh, see Jesus' grave and, you know, knowing his body's there. It'll be a cool place to go, knowing that his body's there. No, no, no that did not happen. Praise God. Jesus, the Christ, the, the Son of the living God, he, the Bible says he has power over death, but praise God even more, he rose from the dead to to life to give you life. He can't give you life until he's alive again. He rose from the dead. Why? To give you life. So again, a wrap-up, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Uh, Jesus prays. Apparently, he's told by the Father, that, okay, they're ready. They're ready to find out the fullness of who you are, of why, uh, 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 of why you came, and Jesus tells them. He says, Here's, listen, this is why I came. I came to be killed, to be suffered, be rejected, and killed. And then, and then we'll close up with these last um, verses. And then he said to them in verse 23, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Verse 25, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in his father, with his Father and of the holy angels." So again, verse 25, what profit is it 
for a man if he gains the whole world, but he himself is destroyed or lost. Uh, Matthew 16 has the same verse, and this is what it says. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In the book of Mark, it says this. For what profit, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And then he goes on in the next verse and says, and by the way, who's ever ashamed of me, Jesus Christ, whoever refuses to leave the crowd and say, yes, I will follow you, I will be ashamed of that one when the angels come in their glory on the day of judgment. Heavy words. He first says, the Son of Man is the one, uh, the Son of Man must come suffer and be rejected, and he's going to be killed, and then he's going to raise again. And, he, and what he's saying is, you better consider very carefully the, how serious that is, that the Son of the living God died. Because because he died and rose again, he now offers you eternal life by stepping out of the crowd, believing who he is, and following him. And 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 he anticipates what people are going to say. But I got this job that I'm doing. I got this career that I'm doing. I get this, this woman on the side. I get this guy on the side. I get this thing I like to do, uh, this hobby, this whatever. And, and he's saying, he, he anticipates all that kind of stuff that we give him as an excuse not to step out of the crowd. And he's saying, why are you saying that? What, why are you saying that? What will it profit you to gain all of that and even much, much more if you lose your own soul, if you go to hell and you are tormented for eternity apart from me. Why would you ever do that? Th- that is what he is saying in, again in uh, verse 25. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world but is himself destroyed or lost? And then he ends again with these very heavy words, and whoever is ashamed of me on the day of judgment, I will be ashamed of him. You know, this morning, I believe with all my heart that, that, that God uh, said, Pastor Steve, or he doesn't call me Pastor Steve. He says, <laughs> Servant Steve, you need to tell these people that I want to take them away from this skin-deep relationship they have with me, and you need to bring them into a full understanding of who I am, why I came, and what it means to follow me. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to ask that the worship team come up now, who's ever doing worship, and also anyone who is doing uh, prayer, and we're going to sing a closing worship song. The Bible says that anyone who comes to Jesus Christ, everyone who came to Jesus Christ and believed him, and actually, they stepped out of a crowd, and they came to him publicly. We just saw that, that the, that, that the, the synagogue ruler in the previous chapter, 
He ate his pride, and he, and he went and to Jesus and cried out for help. And the uh, woman who had, it says, it had a flow of blood for 12 years, did the same thing. She pressed through the crowd. She stepped out of the crowd and came to him. The Bible says that he or she who God calls, he calls publicly. If you've never stepped out of the crowd and said, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. Yes, you're right. What is it going to do me? What's it going to profit me if I gain all these other things that I've been running after, but I lose my own soul? If you've never done that, I'd like you to do that this morning. We're going to have a couple people praying on this side, and if you've been asked to pray over here, you can just get up right there. I just want you to come up during the worship song and say, that's what I want to do. If you'd like to pray about anything else, by all means, uh, by all means, um, uh, come up and, and pray for whatever's on your heart. But uh, uh, again, here's the question: Jesus says, "Who do you? Who do you say that I am?" He goes on to tell them who he is, and really is ending with an invitation: yes or no, Judas. I believe, with all my heart at this time, in his heart, said, no way. (laughs) That's that's not for me. The 11 other apostles said, yes, if you've never stepped out of the crowd and said yes to to Jesus, please do do so now as the worship team uh, begins at this point. And uh, actually, why why don't everyone just rise and... Uh, We can worship the Lord together, and again, if you'd like to come up, please do.